Everybody came in the shop and said, you should be a basketball player, right? But there was something that he said to me that was intriguing, which was, I will show you how to play basketball as a big guy. Welcome to Beyond Speaking with Brian Lord. The moral of the story is take your 10-year-old son to lose. Team beats talent when talent isn't a team. This is not a race. This is war. A podcast featuring deeper conversations with the world's top speakers. I'm Brian Lord, and on the show today, we have a 7'4 NBA All-Star and author, Mark Eaton, as he shares his unlikely story of getting to the NBA, the advice he was given by Wilt Chamberlain, and the four commitments of a winning team. Now, you would think that someone who is seven feet, four inches tall, somebody who has to duck to get through a regular-sized doorway, would have an easy path to the NBA. But that's not the case. There's so many other things that go into being not just an NBA player, but a successful one, an all-star, defensive player of the year, uh, than that. And and the grit and the other things that Mark shows, and just having this crazy weird route that he took to the NBA and also the route he's taken afterwards. So I asked Mark, how did your journey to the NBA begin? Well, it's kind of an interesting story, Brian, because uh, I didn't take the traditional route. Uh, even though I was tall growing up in Southern California and I played on the basketball team, I really I didn't play. I mean, I sat on the end of the bench. I wasn't very good. When I left high school, I was probably six foot eleven and um, not very coordinated. And high school coaches uh, just don't typically know what to do with a big guy. I didn't have a good experience. They didn't know what to do with me. And ultimately, at the end of high school, I thought, well, that's it for athletics. I'd, I'd done some other things, and I played a few other sports here or there, but I really wasn't very good at any of them. And uh, so I thought, well, it's time to go get a job or do something else. I really wasn't that interested in going to college at that point in time. And so um, I grew up, uh, my father was a marine diesel mechanic, and I grew up working on boats in Southern California in the harbor. And a buddy of mine was going to a trade school in Arizona to learn how to be an auto mechanic. And he called me up and said, hey, you want to go with me? And I said, okay. So I went over there for a year, learned how to be an auto mechanic, came back to Southern California, uh, actually got fired from my first job at a Cadillac dealership, and uh, wound up at this tire and auto center in Buena Park, California. Uh, worked there about a year and a half doing tires, uh, brakes, front end alignments, tune-ups, all kinds of things like that. Uh, and um, one day, a gentleman came around the corner and saw me standing out there at this busy intersection talking to a customer and said, wow, who's this big tall guy in the shop, and why isn't he playing basketball? Well, it turned out he was an assistant coach at the local junior college, Cypress College, and he'd worked with a couple of other big guys. So over a period of about two months, he kind of kept harassing me and coming back and again and again, which really kind of ticked me off because everybody came in the shop and said, you should be a basketball player, right? And that used to bother me because like, I don't run around telling everybody else, like, you should be a golfer, you should be this, you should be that. Uh, but, but there was something that he said to me that was intriguing, which was, I will show you how to play basketball as a big guy. And I had never been exposed to anything like that or heard anything like that. I said, well, what do you mean? Like, is that, that's different than, you know, a, uh, another kind of player? And he said, yes. And so he convinced me to, to give it a try just for 30 minutes one day. We, you know, we went over to the blacktop at Cypress College and, and he started showing me some very simple moves that I could do without a lot of dribbling that a big guy could execute that caused me to say, hmm, maybe I ought to consider this again at age 21. 
And he also uh, committed to me that he said, look, if you want to work out, I'll be here every morning and every evening for you before work and after work to show you how this goes. And then you can make a decision after a little while if you want to maybe consider coming back to junior college. Uh, so um, that commitment that he made to me at that point in time was, was just as important as the fact that he could teach me something I didn't know. So that's kind of how it started. So from that, you get there, where, how does the junior college experience and then working up to UCLA? Well, so, uh, so the junior college experience, uh, the first year, I, I kind of hedged my bet. I kept my job as a mechanic in the mornings, and I went to night school, and I went to practice in the afternoon. And things went pretty well there. Uh, I started turning myself into more of an athlete. Uh, Coach Tom showed me some things I could continue to do to improve. Our team did it very well. And uh, the next year, I decided, all right, I should probably get a little more serious about this because this is going pretty well. So I quit my job as a mechanic and I got a job selling cars, Datsuns. <laughs> nice. That's that's the perfect car for you. When that's I think the perfect about it. car yeah. for me. Yes, uh, <laughs> at seven foot four. Yes, driving around a B two ten Honeybee. And uh, so the next year went went even better. And then uh, all these colleges were recruiting me from around the country. And I opted to go to UCLA because they were a big name in college basketball. They were there in Los Angeles. I'd grown up watching Bill Walton and uh, everybody in Coach Wooden's teams. So uh, I enrolled there, and Larry Brown was the coach. Uh, and uh, that didn't turn out to be such a great decision because I ended up sitting on the bench again at UCLA, and it was very frustrating. Uh, and I can remember calling my junior college coach, uh, Tom, and saying, you know, why aren't I playing? What are, what's, go what's wrong here? We made the wrong decision. And he was like, dude, it's not the team. It's not the coach. It's you. You need to get better. And so he said, if you're not going to make the, you know, play in the games, you're going to have to make the practices your games, be the first guy there and the last to leave. And if you do that, uh, I promise you, you'll have an opportunity to try out at it for an NBA team. Well, I, I kept working, uh, even though it was very frustrating on a daily basis, not getting any playing time. And then uh, something interesting happened during the summer between my junior and senior year. One afternoon in the gym at UCLA, they would have these great um, pickup games or practice games every afternoon. I mean, like Magic Johnson was there and all these great Laker players. And uh, they're very uh, uh, high-skilled you know, pickup games, <laughs> and uh, to say the least. And anyway, I'm playing in the game one day, and I'm trying to catch this uh, little quick guard on, their, on the other team named Rocket Rod Foster. And, of course, he's getting to the basket. I'm like not even near half court. And, and so I'm, I'm really frustrated because I'm, I'm feeling like... I'm working hard, but I'm not really getting anywhere. And, and so I'm like on the sideline and I'm just kind of feeling sorry for myself. And, and all of a sudden this big old hand grabs me on the shoulder and I turn around, what well, was Wilt Chamberlain. <laughs> and, and he looks at me and first of all, he says, look, you know, young fellow, you're never going to catch that guy. And I said, well, thank you. Wilt. I already figured that out on my own. Uh, but he said, it's not your job. He said, come with me. And he took me out on the basketball court and he kind of put me right in front of the basket. And he said, you see this basket? He, he said, your job is to stop players from getting there. Your job is to make them miss their shot and then collect the rebound and throw it up to the guard and let them go down the other end and score it. And your job is to kind of cruise up to half court and see what's going on. <laughs> and I'm like, I like this part. Um, he said, I've been watching you play and I see the skill you have at defense. He said, this is really what you need to concentrate on. And so that was a life altering moment for me 
because I understood what I needed to do out on the basketball court and how I could be successful by focusing on this one thing. So in my presentation, I call that knowing your job. Like, what's that one thing you're excellent at? Um, and stop trying to run around and do everything and, and instead focus on the one thing you can be great at. Uh, and that was, a, that was a real turning point for me. And even though I didn't play much the following year uh, at UCLA, I kept that in the back of my mind. And then at the end of my UCLA career, uh, my junior college coach and I, we literally got out the NBA statistics and started asking people if they would let me try out. I mean, it was like cold calling NBA teams asking for a trial because I didn't think anybody was going to draft me. Nobody really knew about me. This was before the internet. There wasn't a lot, unless you were in somebody's scouting report that they mailed to you, nobody had heard about you. And so the Utah Jazz at that time were one of the worst teams in the NBA, last in about every category. And so we called them on the phone. And the coach and general manager, a guy named Frank Layden, actually answered the phone back then because the front office was about six people back then in the early 80s. And he said, Mark Eaton, you know, I... I don't think I've ever heard of him, but send me some video. So he, he claimed later we got all he got was 20 minutes of me taking on off my warm-ups from uh, UCLA. But he came out and watched me play in a summer league in Southern California. And he pulled me aside. He said, you know, I can tell you've been working. He says, you're a little rough. But he said, if you'd be willing to come to our training camp a month early before anybody else gets there and do some extra work with our coaches, he said, I'd be willing to give you an, a contract for one year. And uh, I think that year the, the salary was 45000 And uh, so I, I said, Coach, that's all I'm looking for is a chance. And so I showed up in Salt Lake City in, in September of 1982. And I did what Coach Frank asked me to do. And by February 1st, I ended up being the starting center. Uh, so that's how I got to the, to the NBA. And, of course, you, you had some amazing teammates as well, you know, with Carl Malone and John Stockton and all yeah, those. I, yeah, I started out with some some really good teammates, Adrian Dantley and Daryl Griffith and a guy named Ricky Green, played at Michigan. And and, uh, uh, and then uh, a year later, we got Thurl Bailey, who played for NC State with Jimmy Valvano. And then the year after that, John Stockton shows up. The year after that, Carl Malone shows up. And this team that was a cellar dweller by simply playing together, cooperating with each other a little bit, uh, trusting each other a little bit, and, and as I call it, making each other look good, uh, became a tenant of who we were as a team. And our team went on to start winning playoff games and winning the division. And, uh, and individually, guys started to shine as well. Uh, because if the team wins, you know, you, you win, which is one of the other things I talk about in my presentation. So... Uh, we ended up having a, a long career there. And of course, even after I left, the team continued to go on. There was 20 consecutive playoff appearances that started with that core group of people and, and that uh, with, with Coach Frank back in the early 80s. Uh, and it was because we, we paid attention to each other. We were there for each other. And um, that's, that's one of the, the, the tenets I talk about, making others look good. What's it like playing with some of those guys? I know, I know. It's I always like to do speaking questions, but this one I'm such a basketball fan. I have to know. So, who's you know the, your typical questions? You know, who is the hardest person to guard? Uh, what's the hardest hit you ever took with somebody? What's the hardest hit you ever gave out? Uh, I think because this uh, was back. This was okay, back okay. when you could actually hit people. Yeah, we did. We did hit people. Um, <laughs> yeah, with their rules back there, like no layups. Right? You can still hear. You still hear Magic talking about that today. They had the same rule with the Lakers. Uh, you know, I think for me, um, my my favorite, the hardest guy for me to play against was uh, Akeem Olajuwon, because he was a, a seven footer with a soccer background. And his foot speed was so amazing, his quickness. In fact, I believe one year he led the NBA in both block shots and steals as a center, which was pretty remarkable. 
Uh, and then in terms of hardest hits, boy, I don't know. There were some big guys back then, you know, like you had Bob Lanier, you had Maurice Lucas, you had some of these guys that were kind of kind of thugs. And uh, But I learned pretty quickly that I wanted to be able to dish out more than I was receiving. And so I got back in the weight room and got a lot stronger so that I could hold my position underneath there and I could push guys around. And my job was deliver more pain than I received. <laughs> <laughs> now, the thing is, because is that hard for you? Because you seem like a nice guy. Did you have to train yourself to be more physical? Yeah, I, I did have to train myself. And one thing from both Wilt Chamberlain and my coach, Tom, they said, you know, the key, the painted area under the floor, on, on, under the basket on the floor is really your house. Like you got to take care of your house. And I'm always the kind of guy that will be there for somebody else. Like you can, like you can count on me in the foxhole or whatever. Like I'm, I got your back kind of a thing. And so it was really just going a little deeper into that. And, and, doing some sports psychology with my own brain about like, this is my boundary right here. And if you can, I looked at myself as, as guarding the entire other team, not just one player. Like if you came in the key, that was my responsibility. That's how I looked at it. So it did require some training and some intensity there, but uh, it was also uh, just an outgrowth of who I already was as a person. So it, it ended up being the perfect job for me. Now, with your new book, uh, you, you talk about the four commitments. Kind of what? Give us the the quick outline of that. So, the four commitments of a winning team is really teamwork from the inside out. It's how to get rid of internal competition in your organization. And I had the advantage of playing team at the highest level, where you had to figure it out today. Like you couldn't wait till the next corporate retreat or the next board meeting uh, to have a discussion about teamwork. It's like you either closed the doors and kicked out the the coaches today and had a meeting and got it figured out, or you lose three or four games in a row. You could be living in a new city next week. Uh, so I bring that perspective to the, to the book and, uh, it's a combination of my story of this incredible story from going from a 21 year old auto mechanic to an all-star along with, uh, the people that I've met along the way, uh, and their business stories, uh, and then how they've applied teamwork in their own way. And so at the same time, giving the reader an opportunity to question themselves, what kind of a teammate am I? And how can I improve as a, as a team member? And how can I make other people look good? And how can I let people know I'm really there for them? Along with really focusing on the one thing that I'm great at that I need to spend more time with. So it just goes a little wider and deeper than I do in my keynote. And, um, uh, there's some good stories in there. You know, I mean, I've, I've interviewed some fun people like David Stern, who was the commissioner of the NBA for years and years and years. And uh, uh, and then uh, Junior Bridgman is another guy I interviewed who was a, a great player for the Milwaukee Bucks, who most people don't know is the second largest franchise holder in America. Uh, and um, the, well, the president of a, a credit union in Utah that's now at $4 billion has just gone by leaps and bounds. And he's had to deal with explosive growth over the last few years. Uh, insurance people, some things like that, and and um, and then just some other insider NBA stories from my career. So it's a it's kind of a blend of both of those to give people some that like sports a little bit of that, and who are looking for some business principles that they can share with their team. Uh, some of that as well. David uh, Stern sounds like a uh, he seems like a very strong willed guy. And, uh, you know, that kind of comes through. So I'm curious to know what, what story did you have from him that fits into the sort of the team, uh, teamwork frame? Well, you know, David Stern, uh, came on board in the, in the mid eighties when the team was, or excuse me, when the NBA league was at a, 
a bit of a lull, you know, it's kind of a low spot, not that popular. And he really is, in my mind, one of the branding visionaries in America because he had all these teams out there doing all their own stuff. And you had the San Antonio Spurs or the, you know, the Boston Celtics all doing their own promo videos, this, that, or the other thing. And he brought all that in-house. He said, no, we're going to be one brand. And he said, if we can create one brand, all of you individual cities will be stronger over time. And he had some fights with people who were doing their own thing. Uh, and so I, I think that to me was the most remarkable. And he really looked at it as his family. He was very protective of his family, you know, even to a, a litigious standpoint. Uh, he was going to defend them. He was going to defend the brand. But wow, look at what he created. I mean, over a period of 25, 30 years under his tenure, I mean, these franchises that when I was playing were worth $10 million are now worth, you know, two, three billion dollars. And um, so the, and the brand has gone worldwide. Basketball's in 220 countries around the world. And right behind it is product and, and uh, digital downloads and everything else that goes along with it. They've built an amazing machine. And that's all because of the vision of David Stern. I'm curious to know, uh, if you were still playing today, the NBA has changed so much. Would you be outside shooting threes? You know, I, <laughs> no, probably not. I probably would, I probably would not have a job. Uh, but I was talking to my other coach, Jerry Sloan, about this the other day. We went to a University of Utah game and uh, watching these guys shoot from three-pointers that are seven feet tall. And he said, you know, the problem is, is that you could start doing that. But he said, you've got your, your two guards and the other people on the floor who all grew up being the three-point shooter. And now you take some other guy who's supposed to be a center and put him out there. He says, the potential is you're going to cause some, you know, some strife among your teammates by doing that. And uh, so as cool as it is to have guys shooting three-pointers, I think he was still both old, you know, old school mindset like I am that no, big guys need to be under the basket. And, you know, God bless Dirk, Dirk Nowitzki and guys like that can shoot out there. But uh, in the big scheme of things, um, I never would have been a three-point shooter in, in my position. And I played in the right era because it was all about the, the low post now close down next to the basket. We're releasing this interview uh, right around the time of the NBA playoffs. Who do you think is going to take it home this year? Ooh, that's a good question. Where there's some up and comers. You look at what Houston's doing right now. They're on a tear. You know, I was talking to some guys last night about uh, the Raptors in Toronto, and they, you know, they've got some. They they got real close, and uh, I think they'd like to get back there. Uh, so. You know, I don't think you can just write the Warriors into the finals. I think there's going to be some competition this year. And in the East, I think, you know, people think, oh, the Cavs are going to get back there. But they've had their ups and downs and struggles this year. And um, and so I think there might be some new faces uh, come, uh, you know, Western Eastern Conference Finals time. Thank you for joining us for the Beyond Speaking podcast. Make sure to subscribe and leave a review wherever you listen. To learn more, go to beyondspeak.com because adding the ING was too expensive. For this episode of the Beyond Speaking podcast, your technical director, producer, and head Steelers fan was Eric Woody. Your creative director and part-time leprechaun was Travis Franklin. Brian Lord, your host, executive producer, and specialist in speaking about himself in the third person. Additional thanks to special consultant and the pride of St. Paul, Lauren D. of Dean Associates. Thank you to the incredible voice talents of the muy profundo Robert Borges. Finally, thanks to the premier founder, Dwayne Ward, CEO Sean Hanks, and CIO Chris Jount, simply because you need to thank powerful people. If you listen this far, you clearly have nothing better to do, so why not continue on and listen to the next Beyond Speaking podcast.